and welcome to the sisterhood of Mommy Imperfect. I'm Rena Dipti Annabelle, aka Mommy Imperfect, and this is a podcast where each and every week I explore womanhood and I speak to fabulous females who are rewriting the rules and inspiring other women to do the same. This is episode 170, would you believe it? And it's a very special episode for various reasons, which I'll get into later. I'm also going to be talking about the patriarchy, dissecting it actually. And I'm sure you've heard the phrase smash the patriarchy. And I've mentioned it a few times on this podcast on and off. But what does that actually mean? And where did patriarchy even come from? You know, how deep how, how did it seep its way so deeply into so many cultures? And as women, how do we, you know, rise up against it as we always say that we want to? And how do we claw back that feminine power? So my guest this episode is an award-winning journalist, broadcaster and author. Angela Saini holds two master's degrees, one from Oxford University, and she's produced and presented several TV and radio documentaries. Her last two books, Superior, The Return of Race, Science and Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, have been translated into 14 languages and are on university reading lists across the world. And her latest book, the Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule, was published in spring this year and is a finalist for the Orwell Prize for Political Writing. Angela Saini is basically a badass boss lady and she's joining me now, live from New York. Hello. Hi, thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. It's good to have you. So I just finished your book this morning and um, I'm super excited to speak to you about it. Um, so The Patriarchs is a uh, deep and bold and thought-provoking and for people that don't know can you just describe briefly what it's about? Well um, it's really trying to answer one of the big questions about humanity which is why did why and how did men come to have so much power um, and it really it's a question that's been bothering me and turning around in my head ever since I published Inferior in 2017 which was my book around um sex and gender differences. So it becomes clear, very quickly clear, and anthropologists are really clear about this, that humans haven't always been male-dominated as a species. Um, you see a huge amount of social variation, even today, in how people live and how they organize themselves. So the question I was constantly asked by readers was, then how did we come to this? How did things come to be as skewed as they are now? And I really didn't have a good answer because... The literature on this topic is so thin, um, remarkably, given what an enormous and important question it is, it hasn't really been addressed massively. The last big, really big book on this topic um, was um, in the early 1980s um, by um, Gerda Lerner, The Creation of Patriarchy, looking at ancient Mesopotamia and the uh, kind of historical introduction of gender depression and since then we haven't really had much at all and you know when people talk about oh why is it that you know men are in power and it's been like this for as long as most people can remember you mm. know a lot of people throw the word biology into the mix like oh you know it's biology it's because women have children they've got to stay and look after the children and the men have to provide and go to work and get all the things and hunter gatherers and all this kind of thing but you went mm. deep into history and you know touched on that biological aspect as well didn't you well um I didn't think I had to I thought 
most people would assume that it wasn't just because men are slightly bigger than women or slightly stronger on average than women. Um, but actually, when I speak to people, and I only realized this when, when I was kind of halfway through writing the book, when I spoke to people, it was such a common assumption that men must have always been um, more dominant because they are because of the the average physical difference between the sexes. Um, so I ended up actually writing the first chapter last because I just wanted to debunk that basic <laughs> premise that people had. And I know it does sound, you know, if you don't think about it for very long, it does sound like an automatic, easy explanation for why things are the way they are. But um, it doesn't hold water for lots of different reasons. Number one, if it were about size, then you would see patriarchy or male domination extend right back into the mists of time and you don't do that you see this is you see um far more egalitarian societies and far more social variation the further back you go we don't have very good evidence that in the neolithic people were living in heavily skewed gendered societies and not just that even when we talk about male domination in other species like other primates, chimpanzees, for example, we're generally not talking about males dominating females. We're talking about males dominating other males. So while there are dominance hierarchies among male chimpanzees, there are also dominance hierarchies between female chimpanzees. So there are more dominant females and less dominant females. And aside from that, the other animal closest to us genetically, the bonobo, so this is a close cousin, very close cousin, um, they are matriarchal. Size makes no difference in that species. The male is slightly bigger than the female, and yet females dominate. And and it's so crazy that, you know, people might be thinking, oh, why are you talking about, like, primates and stuff? It's so crazy <laughs> the amount of DNA that we share. And, you know, every time I watch some kind of documentary about it, I'm like, wow, well, we think that we are so great and evolved because we have computers and stuff, you know. And really, we're actually not that much more evolved than them when you when you break it down. Um. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, I went to see bonobos in captivity when I was writing Inferior in San Diego Zoo. And I went with a um, bonobo expert. And it is uncanny when you see them interacting with each other, the way they mm. carry themselves, the way they sit. You see so many similarities between them and us. Now, of course, we're a species apart. So we can't imagine that either chimps or bonobos can offer us a kind of truthful, accurate portrait of our evolutionary mm -hmm. origins. But what they do demonstrate is that you can't assume that just because there is an average size difference or, you know, we, we can't assume that there is some biological basis for patriarchy. I'm not casting that possibility aside completely. I'm mm -hmm. just saying look at what other evidence that we have for explaining why the world the way is the way it is. So, you know, you did talk about in your book um, matrilineal um, communities, you know, uh, of like humans in the world and, um, you know, from way back and stuff. So there have been and, and, and um, I don't know, it's, it's, it was kind of surprising to me how we got from that, which they were quite strong communities, to this, to now, where it's like... Mm. I feel like we have to fight so much for basic things. Like still, you know, even after the suffragettes and all this right to vote, we're still fighting mm. for things and we're still scared of things. 
Yeah, but it really depends on where in the world you are. You know, there are um, parts of the world in which patriarchal systems are thousands of years old. There are other parts of the world in which they're within living memory. And then there are many societies, at least 160, that are still matrilineal, that recognize descent from mother to daughter rather than from father to son, in which women share authority with men. So there is still a lot more variation, I think, than we sometimes appreciate. Um, and one of the racist ways in which um, scholars, Western scholars, have thought about um, male domination is to dismiss those societies because they're all outside Europe and just yes. to say, all oh, right, they're primitive, you know, eventually they will become patriarchal too. And we're, we're just modern civilized industrial nations and all modern civilized industrial nations are patriarchal. But the only reason they're patriarchal is because we created them that way. It's not because there is some inevitable force that turns societies in this direction. I, I find this so interesting, the way that um, the Western world, I, I, I'm obviously, I'm not saying, oh, yeah, they're responsible, but as in there is this whole thing of like, you know, we're, oh, we, we are the evolved ones and we've got it right. And when you go to other places, you're like, oh, actually, uh, before colonialism, this was the mm. case. You know, even with, you know, mm. I'm South Asian, obviously you're South Asian and I'm from a Hindu background and I, I absolutely growing up and even now loved the way that goddesses are worshipped you know I built all on pilgrimages myself um mm. to Vaishnu Devi and all these places you know that people mm. really, really like it's a, it's a massive deal to go and worship these goddesses and you spoke about Kali mm. goddess Kali and what she represents in your book but then it's mm. weird because now, you know I have had to question myself like as an adult like why does that reverence um not translate into the treatment of actual everyday women a lot of the time now. Mm, yeah, and, um, you know, what we see depicted in mythology or religion isn't always a good um, indicator of what actual societies are like. You only have to look to ancient Greece. You know, ancient Athens was a society in which there were goddesses. In fact, there were very powerful goddesses, uh, the warrior goddess Athena, you know, here is someone who transgresses your gender norms that doesn't follow those same patterns. And yet it was a deeply misogynistic society. And a lot of Greek literature is hateful of women and suspicious of women. Um, so I think, you know, there are lots of different ways of interpreting that, you know, do these goddesses um, or these myths represent a time in which gender, gender ideas about gender were different? I think that's very possible. Um, or is it just that what happens in imagination, in the divine space, is something separate from what happens in real life, that we allow ourselves to think about that differently, to be transgressive in the way that we imagine the divine that we don't allow in real life? And, and mm. you know, there is, there is literature on that too. Um, but we, again, we have to remember that in India, and India is a huge country, there is a huge amount of cultural variation mm. there in how people live. It is, many parts of it are deeply patriarchal. When I lived in Delhi, I remember how hard it was <laughs> just navigating the city as a woman, just being able to go out at night without, you know, having one of my male relatives with yep. me or one of yep. my male friends with me and knowing that there was always this kind of tension on the street. You're always being watched. But then if you go to 
Kerala or you go to other parts of South India, the norms are very different. Um, in Kerala, it was home to one of the most famous and influential matrilineal societies in the world, the Nayars of Kerala, um, who lived in these beautiful kind of extended family taravads in which the eldest woman would be the uh, head of the household. And there's one memoir I read, a recent memoir <laughs> that I read, um, in which a man describes growing up in this beautiful family um, system in which his grandmother would never wear anything above her waist. She would Her breasts would be uncovered because that was just the custom. And, and nobody questioned that. Nobody thought that that was weird because that was, you know, there was nothing strange about it. It was just how women carried themselves. And she had great authority and she was influential. So we have to remember that even though we might imagine if we have grown up in a certain way that everybody else is living this way, they're really not. There are so many different ways in which we can live. And another thing that I found so interesting um, in the book, and I, I've heard of it before as well, was that there are some uh, places in India, and I've, just remind me what it, where it is, but where... Um, the women, um, they'll have like multiple partners and they'll, uh, I mean, you, you can kind of explain it better than I'm trying to explain it. Whereabouts was it? Um, multiple partners. Uh, as in like, they didn't have to, they could kind of choose who they wanted to be with and yeah, then they'd have yeah. a child and it, it, all that would be certain is it was their child maybe not who the father was. Yeah, and you do see in matrilineal societies and matrilocal societies, so matrilocal means that you stay in your mother's home mm -hmm. and sometimes your entire life you stay in your mother's home. Um, and so, for example, for the Mosuo in northwestern China, this is a matrilineal society in which um, when a woman comes of age, when a girl comes of age, she's given a chamber inside her mother's home um, into which she can invite men and they stay for the night and they leave the next day and that's as far as marriage goes it doesn't go it doesn't go any further than that and it means that men aren't necessarily raising their own children they are more focused on raising the children of their sisters um so their nieces and nephews rather than their own biological children um and a woman's own children will be raised by the extended family in her own household so there are no, you know, the nuclear family is, again, it's an invention. It's an idea. Mm. It definitely isn't universal. No, no. Um, I mean, what what kind of clicked in my head, uh, one of the things when I read the book was that patriarchy and like the reason why, well, men would want to be like, oh, this is the system that we're living in. When you have a child and obviously, you know, that's necessary to carry on the, the human race, future generations, for them to be sure that is their child, right? The only way that they can be sure is to lock down the women, because we, as women, you know, I'm, a, and 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 being a mom myself, it's like you know, okay, obviously I grew this child, that's my child, but the dad is like, unless you're like, right, we are committed to each other, we're in this relationship, you're not gonna look at anyone else. Do you know what I mean? It, it's like mm. I'm assuming that in history there has been that. Um, kind of the, the the doubt yeah and there that is one of the dynamics that you see um between men and women you even see it between other species this kind of mate guarding yes. behavior 
but I don't think the evidence doesn't suggest that that is the reason that we have male-dominated societies. There is no, you know, mm. the if if that were the case, if it were some natural mate-guarding behaviour on the a part of men, then again you would see male domination universally. Mm -hmm. You would see it stretch right into the mist of time, and you don't. Um, so the big question really is then where do you start to see the first evidence of gender depression? Does it start in the family or does it start elsewhere? And the argument my, I make in the book is that um, we don't see gender depression, you know, not in the societies that we have evidence from 9,000 years ago, at least not yet. Maybe that evidence will come later. Maybe archaeologists will dig something up. But right now, there doesn't seem to be compelling evidence that people lived very different lives depending on their gender 9,000 years ago. Right. Where the big change happens is with the rise of the state. So when you get the big, you know, nation states the f or the inspiration for the nation states first forming, the first empires in regions like ancient Mesopotamia, this is around the Fertile Crescent, what you see is that... Um, those in charge, the elites at the top of society, men and women, become very concerned with population. How do we get people to stay inside these states, to produce a surplus for us, to defend the states if necessary? And what happens is that over time, and when I say over time, I mean over thousands of years, pressure starts to fall on young women who until then would have done pretty much all the th same things that men were doing. You know, every in subsistence societies, hunter-gatherer societies, everybody is capable of doing anything because they have to be, um, because you can't survive unless everyone is doing everything, including children. Um, so what you see is a pressure start to fall on young women to have as many children as possible in order to populate the state. Mm -hmm. And you so see a pressure start to fall on young men uh, to defend the state. Uh, to be available to give up their lives in times of war. Um, so those two preoccupations, which we still see now, any government in the world, as soon as birth rates start to fall, they get nervous and they, you know, bring in incentives and measures to try and increase the population. You know, any country in which birth rates start to plummet is at existential risk. <laughs> you know, they start to get very nervous. You can see it in China, for instance. Um the one-child policy was overturned. Women still weren't having enough children. So the government has introduced all kinds of interesting measures to encourage young people to have children, including recently they decided to give college students a week off so that they might fall in love and have families together. Wow. Um, so this ha And this happens everywhere. Or many countries around the world have incentives for families, tax incentives, income incentives, grants, all kinds of things. So those two twin preoccupations then become the basis for that crucible of the patriarchal state. It requires women to kind of focus on the domestic and it requires men to focus on the kind of military. And this is where we get our stereotypes about masculini masculinity and femininity is because of those two demands by the patriarchal state. Of course, not every man is capable of fighting or wants to fight. We know <laughs> we only have to look around us to know that that's the case. Mm. And we know that not every woman wants to have children or is capable of having children. But the patriarchal state doesn't care. Mm. As far as it is concerned, you have to perform that role, that very narrow binary yes. gendered role 
in order to fulfill the needs of those at the top. So my argument is then that patriarchy doesn't start in the family. It starts with the state and it filters down into the family. It dictates how the family has to behave. That's so interesting. Um, you know, Angela, one of my favourite quotes of your book and one which kind of really spoke to me is, um, but where do we turn when our cultures are both something we want to protect and the source of our oppression? So I really felt that in my heart, you know, because, you know, being South Asian and having certain traditions and things like that is uh, and wanting to carry on the culture. And I, I'm one of those people who mm. like, obviously, I'm British, but I've been raised in a way where it's like my family were the ones organizing the big Diwali celebrations. My family were the ones, you know, who kept going to India all the time. So all these things, you know, are part of me and even things like oh, to fast or not to fast, like things like that. Mm. I think about them now. And and mm. when we, um, you know, look at things like traditions that tie us to our culture and our family, things like kanyadan, yeah. you know, giving away the bride, mm. like, you know, yeah. Western people do that too, giving away the bride. Mm. And obviously dan means something different as well, like donating. But, um, you know, we love and respect our dads, for example, and we want them to have mm. certain roles. But how do we separate ourselves from kind of uh, those cultural practices while still feeling like we're, close to our culture um well it's difficult because if you belong to a traditionally patriarchal society following your culture following custom then means buying into certain patriarchal traditions and again this isn't true for everyone you know if you belong to Naya heritage in Kerala that heritage that culture is actually a matrilineal one it's a very different one from what it would be for example if you are like me, Punjabi, and from North India. It's very, very different. Um, I mean, I was lucky. I grew up in a household in which, um, I mean, we did, you know, we did things with our Indian family. We had an Indian community in which we participated. But my dad's view was always that, a sceptical one, you know, <laughs> just question everything. And so I always looked at things from, and maybe also because we grew up in Britain, looked at things from a slight difference and only took what I thought was useful. I didn't take absolutely everything. I do not, I would never fast for my husband. I would <laughs> never, I did not take my husband's surname. There are lots of things that I just wouldn't right. do. I chose not to do. And I never felt pressure from my parents at least to to live any other way. Um, I was very lucky that, you know, I hear horror stories about people who, when they were growing up, their mum would do all the cooking and cleaning and their dads would just sit there reading the paper. It was not like that in my family. My mum and dad did everything. And there was no sense that there was women's work or men's work. My dad's view and my mum's view was that work is just work. It doesn't really make any difference. Everybody has to do it. Um, which was lovely and a really important lesson. I just didn't realise that everybody didn't live that way. Mm. It was quite a shock to me, yeah. you know, to encounter families in which things were very different. Um, and even when I got married, I remember being appalled that my in-laws are both doctors, you know, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, and yet there seemed to be a division of labour in their household and I couldn't get my head around it. I just couldn't understand it. Um, and certainly in my own family, after I got married, um, I have, you know, we have deliberately cultivated a family in which there is no men's work or women's work, in which we really do divide things as equally and fairly as possible. 
And that negotiation, we have to remember, is not something new. That's not something that 21st century women do. Women have done that right throughout history. You look at, you know, when I was... um, when I was researching the book and I was at uh, the museums in Anatolia looking at these ancient tablets, Assyrian tablets, there are divorce tablets in which men and women agree legally to have equal rights to divorce. You know, they are negotiating within that contract. It's a legal contract. You know, what will be the terms of this marriage? How will we decide how to end it? Um, So, that has always happened. And I think that is how you exercise agency within patriarchy, is within your families, within the society as well, pushing for rights, legal rights, but also within your family, negotiating your position. And these little things, like we think they're little things, but they're quite big things really, because if you're raising future generations Mm -hmm. and these small things and the seeds that you put in people's heads really do make a difference, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. They they make an enormous difference. They can completely change the dis- choices and the decisions that you make throughout life. I have no doubt that me and my sisters made the choices that we did. One of my sisters is an academic. Another one is a climate change consultant. We are very independent people because of the upbringing that we had. We never had any sense that there was anything that we couldn't do. I studied engineering because my dad studied engineering. And I thought, if he can do it, then I can do it. He taught us DIY. I do the DIY at home yeah. because that's what I was, you know, brought up to do. So, um, you know, it, it is difficult, I know, because I, I know myself, I have a 10-year-old, and one of the hardest things as a parent is to let your child be themselves yeah. in the most expansive sense. You want them to conform because then it will be easier for them, you know, they, then they will fit in. Um, then it will be easier for them to have a relationship and get married. You want them to fit within that mould. The hardest thing to accept is that they don't. Yeah, and it's that is really, uh, I mean, I, I'm really thinking about this kind of thing these days because my eldest is 14 and, you know, I'm, I really do think about these things like, no, just let them be, let them be. Um, yeah, it, it is difficult. Um, Mm. So you're um, obviously British and you're living in the States now. Um, Mm. As we know, you know, things in America aren't as kind of free as people think they are, you know, with the abortion rights Mm. being one of them. Like, how do you feel about being there and um, the kind of uh, the attitudes towards women and women's rights over there as uh, compared to over here in the UK? Well, it's interesting because I write, obviously, I take the very long view. When I write, I look right back into history. And my book starts in the Neolithic. So this is like nine, 10,000 yeah. years ago. And when you take that long view, it really does give you a different perspective on current events. So when I see the abortion debate here, I put it in the context of an a state that was built, you know, the United States was not built on fully egalitarian foundations. It denied women the vote um, from the beginning. Mm. Um, there was a real sense that women should be domesticated from the beginning. The founding fathers were committed, Thomas Jefferson particularly, were committed to this idea that a woman's place was in the home, that if she wanted to exercise political power, she had to do it vicariously through her sons and her husbands, through their sons and husbands. So, you know, that idea that a woman 
does should not have complete freedom in the choices that she makes, that she is serving the state in some way, that her job is as a mother is so deeply ingrained in American society. And then you add religion to that. Yeah. And that religious element in which, again, you know, depending on your reading of Christianity, and there are many different readings, there is this kind of idea that, oh, you know, there are roles for men and women, there are certain ways that you should live. It doesn't surprise me massively that this is a country, this is a very religious country, deeply religious, much more religious than the UK, even though this is, on the surface at least, a secular state, and the UK is a Christian country, yeah. but this feels far more religious. Um, because people invoke God all the time. all the, Even politicians, they will talk about God all the time in speeches. Um, so, you know, for all those different reasons, I'm not massively surprised at what's happened uh, on the abortion issue. But then again, you know, it's so big as a country and it is home to some of the most progressive social movements in the world. Um, and that is what makes it such an exciting and thrilling place to be because you see at the same time as this pull to tradition and religion, you see people being so radical in the way that they imagine the future. Mm. Um, I just want to talk about feminism for a minute. What does mm. feminism mean to you? Um, you know, I turn this over in my head because I, you know, ev I think every woman's feminism is different. Um, you know, for some it is about moving up the career ladder and having more women at the top. For some, it is a kind of socialist feminism, flattening things out for everybody. And I lean, I think, more towards that than perhaps that corporate capitalist version of feminism that we tend to have these days. Um, but I think ultimately we need to ask ourselves, what is patriarchy? If we see it in a flattened way as men just dominating women, I think we miss the point. We have to understand that this is a system in which we are all invested to some degree, in which we have all made a commitment to some degree. Even something as anodyne as taking your husband's name after you get married, which seems perfectly innocent, that tradition has its roots in slave owning, which inspired modern day institutions of marriage. You know, this is what would happen to slaves. They would they would enter a family, they would be taken captive, enter a family, stripped of their identity and given their master's name. That is what that is where that tradition of changing your surname when you get married comes from. That you are stripped of your identity and you take on your husband's identity. You become his property. Eventually, that's how the, the direction the laws went in. Uh, and yet, you know, there are lots of women I know, women within my own family who are very emancipated, feminist, and yet have still done that. So we have to remember that in so many areas of our lives, we keep these things alive. We don't question them. You know, for me, to be truly anti-patriarchal, we have to be able to question everything. Everything has to be on the table. And we have to be willing to think again about it. That is very difficult. I understand. It's very difficult because it means <clears throat> denying parts of ourselves that are, are invested in our religions and our customs and our cultures. Um, but we are never going to completely rid ourselves of it unless we're able to do that. Mm. Um, 
And Angela, what is next for you um, in terms of things that you're looking into or writing about? Because I kind of, I don't know, I just get the sense that you kind of just have this idea, then just take it way, you know, deep. And um, it's so interesting, the things that you write about. What's next for you? Well, I'm taking a little break. So I wrote three books back to back (laughs) since starting around 2014 or 2015. So I'm taking a little gap. I do a podcast series every year for the journal Science, and this year's series is on books about sex and gender. So I interview the authors of generally academic texts, but not always, um, looking at different aspects of sex and gender, and that has been really fascinating. There is such an exciting literature now looking at, um, you know, the science of um sex beyond the binary that is looking at the transgender experience i've just uh, interviewed someone recently about african intersex you know how intersex was imagined in south africa by colonial powers um i'm going to be doing a little bit of teaching later in the fall um and i'm still traveling so i'm going this summer i'm coming to the uk for a bit i'm going to australia um and doing book events there and then i'll come back and settle down and start working on the next book it all sounds very exciting and if people want to find more information about you and your books so can you share your um, website or social media handles yeah I'm not on Twitter or Facebook because mm-hmm. I got hounded by white supremacists after my last book came out it was on race and race right. science um, but I am on Instagram Angela D Saney and uh, my website is www.angelasaney.co.uk Lovely, thank you so much. It's been so interesting uh, speaking to you. Uh, I'm off to now change my name back. And um... <laughs> I hope I haven't shamed you into, into anything. You haven't. Don't feel bad actually, about it. We no, all do you haven't at all. all <laughs> you haven't. I can't believe we didn't even get to talk about mother-in-laws. I thought we were. I know. I know. We did it. No. Do you know what? There. I, honestly, there's so many things that came up, and um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I would love to talk to you again at some point in the future. Um, but it's been absolutely lovely having you thank you so much it's my pleasure thank you so much for having me that was the lovely Angela Saini she is so awesome Um, I really respect all the work she puts into her books and uh, yeah she really makes you think doesn't she so uh, I have a little announcement that I'm putting on to the end of the episode and the announcement is that um, this episode of the sisterhood of mommy and perfect is going to be my last episode for a while I'm not putting away my microphone forever, don't worry. I'm just taking a break from weekly episodes and I think it's time, you know, this is 170, episode 170, like I said, of season two. So there's probably closer to 200 episodes altogether. And I started this back in 2018 when podcasting wasn't really a big thing. Um, You know, I was just into kind of creating the space that women could speak about things and inspire each other and create a sisterhood and I am always like you know interested in broadcasting and new things that I can do and I I feel like I'm so proud of all the episodes I have produced I've spoken to so many wonderful and inspirational women and a few amazing male guests too and I've learned so much from all of them and I hope that you have too so thank you so much for listening and for your feedback as well And, you know, there are so many people who are experts in their field that I've spoken to, like psychologists, nutritionists, life coaches, doctors, relationship experts, actresses, singers, writers, um, 
famous people and you know everyday sheroes too but people who have gone through some really challenging things in life and come out the other side stronger and have shared that with us and i've made a lovely network of people through doing this you know people that always cheer me on and support me and i do the same for them as well um so you know that is what sisterhood is about and that's what the sisterhood of mommy imperfect is about and um i feel like i don't want to keep covering the same topics in the same way or even a slightly different way i don't want to do that and the moment that i think that any kind of broadcaster does that it's time to then switch it up so i'm going to take the summer off from podcasting to work on other things i'm going to be doing radio presenting anyway on sunrise radio so you can listen to me there if you're missing my voice and i'm going to spend some quality time with my children and the rest of my family as well and i'm going to be back with something that is new and fresh for you a little later in the year i would really like to keep in touch with you though during the time off to let you know about projects that i'm working on and i'm going to put out a newsletter a monthly newsletter and i'd love you to subscribe to that it's going to be packed full of um content about women and wellness which is really important to me lots of tips of about looking after your mind your body and your soul and because it's me obviously i'm going to sprinkle it with a good dose of humor to some mummy and perfect masala and if if this is something that you are interested in receiving then please do go to um my bio in my social media um so on uh, the mommy and perfect facebook page also on instagram which is the main social media that i use um and it's a uh, sisterhood of mommy and perfect on there and i'm going to be putting a link in there um so you can sign up uh, and i won't spam you i promise it's just a monthly newsletter um do keep following me on social media i'm going to be posting up news about things that i'm working on and uh, putting up content on there sharing some unheard and unseen gems from the past 170 plus episodes um and drawing your attention to some of those but for now you know what i'm going to say don't you because if you're a regular listener you know until next time peace out bernie bye